Ben & Jerry's parent company pays the price for boycotting Israel as state pension funds start to divest. Congress votes overwhelmingly to support funding for Iron Dome. We'll talk about the twists and turns that came before the vote. And we'll talk about Iran, Israel, Afghanistan, and a whole lot more with this week's special guest, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insiders Limited Liability Podcast. And welcome back to episode 23 of Jewish Insiders Limited Liability Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Shana Tova to one and all. Shana Tova, Jared Bernstein. Congratulations to all of us on making it through another high holiday season. Uh, Jared, we've taken a breather here at the podcast through the holidays, as everyone has in their own lives. There's simply very limited bandwidth to record a podcast when you've got so much food coming at you. Of course, not on Yom Kippur. Uh, but we're happy to be back and into the swing of things. How were your holidays, my friend? Baruch Hashem, my holidays were great. Uh, did a little traveling for my day job and was able to visit uh, our friends at Chabad of the Virgin Islands, see oh. their incredible sukkah down there on St. Thomas. Wow. But before we go any further, Rich, I, I want to plug for our listeners that you wrote an incredibly powerful piece on U.S. foreign policy up to leading up to the 9-11 attacks, the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks, and where we are 20 years on. And for those for those who haven't read it yet, uh, I think folks need to push pause and go listen and go read Rich's 6,000 odd word misses <laughs> on American foreign policy at least, over the last 20 years. At least, least 6,000 words. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, that for Mosaic magazine, uh, where I am a columnist. Um, and uh, yeah, it was uh, an honor to write it. Uh, it's my 10 year anniversary of being in Afghanistan in uniform uh, and was actually there through the high holidays and uh, have some experiences there, which I share in the essay. So it was kind of kind of neat. Okay, well, let's get to some of the news coming out before we get to our special guest. Issue one, Unilever. If you're not familiar with Unilever, it's okay. I had never heard of this company either until Ben and Jerry's was in the news announcing uh, it was boycotting the state of Israel. Uh, they're certainly famous now. Unilever is the parent company uh, of Ben and Jerry's and a whole lot of other brands you probably know at the supermarket. Uh, Unilever wholly owns Ben and Jerry's responsible for the decision uh, to cut off its licensee in Israel. Uh, as many probably know, over the last several years, they have been state laws passed in about 33 states uh, to push back on the BDS movement. 12 of those states actually require their pension funds to divest from companies that are determined to be boycotting the state of Israel. And in the last couple of weeks, we've seen New Jersey, Florida, Texas, uh, probably others like Illinois to come, uh, now announcing they have divested their direct holdings uh, of the company Unilever, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of investments, uh, more states to go. Uh, you know, we'll see where this, where this goes. Uh, I think, I hope, Jared, that, you know, we don't want to see companies get into trouble. That's not the objective of these laws. Uh, but it is a strong message that we stand up on principles. These laws have applied in the past to South Africa. They have applied in the past to save Darfur uh, for companies doing business in Sudan during the genocide. They have applied to Iran to get companies to cut off business with Iran. And now they apply for our values of standing with Israel uh, and being against boycotts of Israel, which we've been against since the 1970s with the Arab League boycott. Yeah, and I think it's an interesting time uh, in American discourse because companies are now in a way that maybe they haven't had to in the past really having to engage in this conversation about what their values are. 
right? Everybody knew Ben and Jerry's was a progressive company and that they were for the environment and against GMOs and all this. But but this is a step or several steps beyond that. And certainly with a company like Unilever, which is a big, you know, consumer products brand, uh, they are now involved in a values conversation, which either they weren't equipped to have, weren't anticipating, and now now they're right in the middle of it. So we'll, we're going to be following this one closely. And next up, Iron Dome. So uh, this is an interesting episode. I'm going to go ahead and say it, it is uh, making a mountain out of a molehill. Uh, there was a movement to strip out funding on uh, for Iron Dome replenishment from a, from a much larger bill that was being passed in the House. Then when the bill came up as a standalone for Iron Dome funding, there were a number of progressive members, uh, two handfuls, who voted no, uh, with one of the squad, uh, AOC from up in my neck of the woods, voting present in a very emotional um, scene on the, on the House floor. I think for my money, this is, you know, an expression of what we've seen of a very small number of progressive members of the Democratic caucus. And in the end, uh, what happened is what always happens is there is significant support for particularly for defensive armaments for the state of Israel and replenishing them after the recent conflict with Gaza, where Iron Dome really saved lives of both Israelis, Palestinians and everybody in between. Yeah, listen, Jared, I think it's unfortunate um, that what I would dub the Hamas wing of the Democratic Party at this point, um, which I, which, by the way, I take <laughs> issue with. Uh, uh, I mean, unless we were willing to call, you know, some some ranks of the Democrat, the Republican Party, you know, the Klan, the Klan. I mean, I think the hyperbole oh, I, actually I, doesn't help. The, doesn't help the conversation. I, I'm happy to throw uh, Representative Massey uh, from our side of the aisle into the. Hamas caucus. I think it can be a bipartisan caucus. Um, uh, I, I, I don't take <laughs> issue with that. Uh, but uh, if you are against uh, Iron Dome on principle, uh, I don't really know how else to characterize you, in my opinion, but we, we, we can get into that later. Uh, what I do think is obviously there are anomalies. That's what they call them. That's the uh, Washington speak for random um, amounts of money that wouldn't normally be in what's a stopgap measure, which is a continuing resolution to keep the government funded if you don't have the full appropriations bills ready by September 30th. Um, and so a lot of times the administration, congressional leaders will come and try to air gap in random pieces of money into what's already a very large funding bill so that nobody would notice you get some sort of priority funded while you're doing this, this stopgap appropriations. Uh, oftentimes people do pay attention to those anomalies and they wanted their anomaly funded, right? They wanted their priority funded, but it didn't get in the bill because we're, they were told, no, I'm sorry, this is not the real budget. This is just a stopgap measure. We'll take up your item later on. So the idea that there's contested priorities in a stopgap and people get upset, well, why isn't my priority in there? Why is this priority? And you add to the fact that Republicans weren't even gonna support the measure. So they had a very razor thin margin to work with. It does make a lot of sense that you know, this could have happened on anything. And it's a shame it happened on this issue so publicly. I worry more about what happened when the bill came back up as a straight appropriations for Iron Dome. And it felt like the messaging from Democratic leadership in the House was, it's okay to vote for this because it's a defensive weapon system. And, and you know, the subtle message I kind of took away was, well, what would happen if this was an offensive weapon system that was needed by the state of Israel? Would that make it less okay politically for the Democratic caucus to support it? 
I, I don't know the answer to that. And I hope it's not a dangerous precedent that we're walking into. No, I, I hear the concern. I think that, you know, we got, I, I as a Democrat have faith in the, the Democratic leadership and, and the pro-Israel bona fides of the Democratic leadership. And, you know, occasionally uh, the bipartisan nature of the House of Representatives, I heard that that used to be a thing from time to time. Um, and I think that it'll continue to be a bipartisan issue. I think we'll see debate around this because it already started and it is not going anywhere. Um, but it will, you know, be largely linked to how much Republicans uh, want to make Israel a partisan issue and cast the Democratic Party as sufficiently, not sufficiently pro-Israel. And instead of working on building a bipartisan coalition, like there's two ways to skin that cat. Right. And, uh, you know, the ball is certainly with Democratic leadership to see how how they handle their caucus, but but with Republican leadership also to see how much they want to make this a wedge issue to run on. So, um, And of course, like to be I, fair, to be fair, Rand Paul, Republican, is now the yeah. one publicly at least holding up the bill in the Senate uh, from Yam's consent. The, uh, by the way, uh, as I've often found, there may be other people, they just haven't raised their hand to say, I'm holding this too. Uh, right. Rand Paul's the one who raised his hand and said, yeah, and here, here's my concerns. Well, you know. Let's get to our guest, Rich. Uh, on, on that positive high note of coming together, uh, well, let's definitely get to our special guest. Mike Pompeo served as U.S. Secretary of State from April 8, 2018 to January 2021. And as director of the Central Intelligence Agency from January 2017 to April 2018. Before joining the Trump administration, Secretary Pompeo was serving in his fourth term as a congressman from Kansas's fourth district. He served on the House Intelligence Committee, as well as the Energy and Commerce Committee and the House Select Benghazi Committee. He's a West Point graduate, Army veteran, and former businessman, and now a distinguished fellow at the Hudson Institute. Secretary Pompeo, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Great to be with you all today. Well, we'll start with Iran, if that's okay with you. Uh, it's always in the news and important to our listeners, and I know important to, to you as well. Uh, your successor, uh, Secretary Blinken and Special Envoy for Iran, Rob Malley, have both said repeatedly publicly that they think the killing of Qasem Soleimani during the Trump administration was a net negative for U.S. national security. Certainly you, others in the administration, uh, played uh, significant roles in that. 21 months on now, how do you view that decision? How do you view its impact on U.S. national security in the region? You know, it is unexplainable to me how any American could think the actions that President Trump directed that day didn't make America more secure. I, I'll start with the tactical and operational. He was actively engaged in continuing to plot against Americans. He'd already had the blood of over 500 Americans on his hand. He was traveling from Beirut to Damascus to Baghdad engaged in building out an effort to kill more Americans. To, to think that he wouldn't be not only an appropriate target, but an important target is beyond my imagination. I don't think the American I don't think the American people agree with someone who thinks he should still be alive. You should know President Biden said the same thing during the campaign as well. Of course Osama bin Laden would be alive if he were in charge today too. Second, it's worth noting that the world took notice. It took notice in many respects. It said America, when it draws lines, it's going to it's going to enforce them. When Trump administration has uh, a conversation, a diplomatic communication, 
they'll, if they draw a line, they mean it. And the, the strike on Soleimani was certainly that the world took notice. Chairman Kim took notice. Xi Jinping took notice. And so I started with the tactical and operational. But the strategic importance of the United States being willing to take down the primary form fomenter of terrorism from the Islamic Republic of Iran that is itself the world's largest state sponsor of terror cannot be underestimated. Mr. Secretary, you have it's been famously reported that you have a very close relationship with Yossi Cohen, uh, senior member of the Israeli National Security Establishment. Any stories you're allowed to share with us uh, about the audience <laughs> with the audience about that friendship? Uh, yes, uh, absolutely. Yeah, he is a very close friend. Uh, we worked so closely together, taking our two organizations and delivering on behalf of our respective nations, uh, me on behalf of the United States and him on behalf of the people of Israel. And the work we were able to do because we we convinced our teams that our efforts together could be powerful as liaison partners. We could do really good work together was uh, was something that Prime Minister Netanyahu and President Trump appreciated. And I think the world is safer for the work we did together. I, I'm actually traveling to Israel next week. Uh, I'll get a chance to see him again, spend some time with him. But we were both determined. We were serious. We knew we had leaders that wanted to have the capability to understand what was going on, the intelligence collection component, and the capacity to deliver operations when necessary in a way that neither of us could likely do alone. And so we worked, he and I, closely together, and we had our teams doing remarkable work. And was there ever a moment where it got sort of awkward? Obviously, you know, spy movies are a incredible genre. You ran the CIA. Uh, you know, you did it. Um, were there ever moments where, you know, two sovereigns intelligence services had some awkward moments where it wasn't all uh, roses and sunshine? Oh, no, I don't think any two organizations in the world ever achieved perfection and, or unanimity. We had we had different missions. Uh, we each were working on behalf of our own nation, for sure. But what we did was we collapsed the circle of times when that happened. There's a long history of intelligence organizations across the world, all thinking they're the best and the biggest and what have you, and that they know better. We knew that was true for our respective organizations, and we knew that combined we could actually deliver better outcomes. And so there's always rough moments. There's always egos. Uh, all of that exists, but we did our best to to deliver on the places where our mission sets were overlapping, where we could cumulatively do good work for each of our two nations. And I think the, the awkward moments were fewer because of the relationship that he and I developed. We were always professional. I am confident he kept secrets from me. <laughs> and I, I am, I am, I am I'm equally confident that we didn't share uh, literally everything that we were doing with him as well. It wouldn't be appropriate. We wouldn't expect the other to do that, but the space we were able to develop was powerful. Mr. Secretary, the Biden administration is now more than eight months into office. No discernible Iran strategy that I can tell other than going right back into the old expired JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal. You obviously were a key leader in the maximum pressure campaign. We see interviews today. Rob Malley, the special envoy, gives interviews. He's asked, why are things not going well with Iran? Every answer is always the maximum pressure campaign. It's the failure of maximum pressure. Uh, how do you respond to that? And how do you assess the Biden policy on Iran in the broader Middle East today? It is diff difficult to discern precisely what their policy is. You have to default to the idea that this administration, just like the Obama administration, actually believes that they can convince Iran to be a stabilizing influence in the Middle East. I think that's crazy. Uh, I would suggest to you and your listeners that there's no uh, there's no evidence of that in the record. I'm always about facts and realism. I see no evidence that Iran 
under its current leadership with the Ayatollah and the Quds Force and the Basij in control and with Ibrahim Raisi now as the president. I see no evidence that they're going to be a stabilizing force, but I think that's the Biden administration's theory. And then their policy seems to have devolved just to the, the single issue of their nuclear weapons program. We always knew that the challenge of Iran was manifold. Their nuclear program mattered. We had to stop it. We were determined to do that. I'm convinced that we would have continued to prevent them from having a nuclear weapon. But we also knew that their espionage efforts, their uh, terror efforts in five capitals, right, in Sanaa, Beirut, and the work that they did in Gaza. Remember, remember, it didn't take but a couple of weeks before the Biden administration came in and the Iranians were firing rockets from Gaza into Israel. I, I, you can never prove the negative, but I can't imagine that happening with Donald Trump as president during our time. Uh, their, their policy looks to be that same one of appeasement. We can just buy them off. We'll send them money and they'll slow their nuclear program down. That is very dangerous for the state of Israel. It's a danger for the Gulf state coalition that we built alongside of Israel to isolate Iran in a way it had never been isolated before. And uh, an Ayatollah with more money is riskier than an Ayatollah under a maximum pressure campaign. Mr. Secretary, I have one follow-up, sort of to zoom out for a second on Iran, because we talk a lot about this on the podcast. Do you believe from where you're sitting and, and observing and participating in all this, that Iran, when it comes to statecraft, is a rational actor? No, this is a religious organization. <laughs> that is, that is, they are on uh, a, a religious jihad for the destruction of the state of Israel and the, the, the big devil as well. Uh, the leaders are evil. This is ideological. So your question of, is it rational? Look at the tactical level. They make decisions. When we struck Qasem Soleimani, their response wasn't what many had feared, that there would be a, a major conflict between the United States and Iran. We were convinced that we had containment in a way that prevented that. So you could argue that's rational as a tactical operational matter, but you, you can't you can't rationalize the the anti-Semitism. You can't you can't rationalize uh, their desire to destroy the freedom of every one of their people and the human rights of every Iranian. Those are those aren't rational leaders. Those are those are people who are protecting their own power. And I guess you can always default to say, well, that's rational because if they let off the th throttle on that, if they create freedom, they'll certainly be deposed. But in the grander sense, uh, in, in terms of Western thinking and Western logic. It is it is more zealotry, more religious, less thought. But Mr. Secretary, you, you touched on this a little bit. You talked about the uh, Gulf coalition that you built alongside the United States, alongside Israel in the counter Iran mission. Obviously, one of the fruits of that labor were the Abraham Accords, uh, which were truly historic, changing the nature of the Middle East. I'm struck that one year on, we have not seen another country come forward. We never did see the Saudis come forward. What do you chalk that up to? Is it the change in the administration? Is it the change in Iran policy? You know, what would it take for us to get that normalization track strengthened and the momentum to get more countries signing on? Yeah, it's an important question. We uh, we were working so hard to get additional nations to recognize Israel. We were pretty close with a couple of others, but we didn't get across the line in our time. Uh, what when, when you ask the question, what it will it take for the next nation to make that decision for a, a capable leader to make the right choice for his country, they have to know that America is going to be supportive of that effort. And I, I don't say the conditions for that today. We just talked about this administration's Iran policy. It would be, it is increasingly difficult for another country to sign on to the Abraham Accord conceptually 
when the United States is playing footsie with Israel's arch enemy, right? Indeed, the enemy that wants to destroy it, that it could be stronger, they could impose real costs on that nation. What, what the countries who joined during our time knew was that we were going to make sure that we protected Israel, right? Whether it was, and we had demonstrated, not just with words, this is the, the other thing that I think gets forgotten. Uh, it wasn't just with words, right? We, we physically, we moved the embassy to Jerusalem. We recognized the Golan Heights. We said that Israel was not an occupying force in the West Bank. We, de- we delivered assistance to the Middle Eastern countries to protect them, both intelligence and military assistance to protect them from the Islamic Republic of Iran. I think it'd be very difficult to expand that circle without an America that the Arab countries understand will be there to ensure that they have the things that they need to do to secure their own people. Mr. Secretary, I want to move just a little bit east of Iran across the border uh, to Afghanistan. Uh, And obviously, you had a very central role in helping declassify a lot of the information we now know of today about the connections between al-Qaeda and Iran, some of the AQ facilitators that still remain inside Iran that that, that you had uh, announced and designated uh, right before you left office. Uh, I do want to ask, though, obviously, with everything we've seen going on in the last few weeks, uh, and we look back on discussions and peace negotiations with the Taliban over the last uh, couple of years. We had a lot of critics. Some of my colleagues, FDD, Tom Jocelyn, Bill Raggio, were warning, you know, the Taliban haven't changed. We're documenting them. These are the same bad people from 20 years ago. Don't sign a peace treaty with them. It's not going to end well. Indeed, uh, I feel like those critics were proved correct. Was there a point in those negotiations that you actually felt the Taliban had changed, that, that they could change, that this was a different Taliban, this Taliban 2.0 that we've been told about? Uh, no, by the way, uh, Bill and Tom are two of the most talented counterterrorism folks in the world. Their, their data is important. I, I know each of them a bit and uh, follow their work closely, did before I was in Congress, did while I was in Congress and in my time now as well. Uh, no, that there was there was never a moment where we felt like we were at the place where we were going to get peace and reconciliation between the Taliban and the other Afghans. But we also knew it was essential that we work on it. Right, you make peace with your enemies, uh, even sometimes if they're pretty rowdy enemies, and you always make sure that when you do that, you secure American freedom, you protect America's interests. That was the approach that we took to our conversations with the Taliban. Look, we received a bunch of criticism from uh, folks like them and. And other Republicans too, Senator Graham, but but we were right to do what we did. Um, we we sat down with every Afghan group. Karzai was there, the whole all, all the gang, women's group sitting at the table with the Taliban, beginning what would almost certainly have been a years long conversation about how to create conditions to avoid the calamity that Afghanistan has now been for centuries. It was a worthy undertaking. We did that all the time, knowing that a piece of paper mattered as a guidepost, but not as an operational, not as an operational document. The operational activity took place in the theater of operations. And so when Al-Qaeda broke their agreement, when they didn't live up to their promise, whether it was to uh, avoid certain places inside of Afghanistan or to break with Al-Qaeda, we imposed enormous costs on them. And so as we began to deliver on President Trump's commitment to draw down our uniformed military personnel there in Afghanistan, we were always mindful we had multiple objectives, not the least of which was to ensure that the United States wasn't attacked from that place again. And we managed that process for four years. We did so incredibly effectively. 
We didn't have a single American attacked for the last couple of years of our administration, not because of a negotiation or a piece of paper, but because of a set of understandings we had, some of which were documented in that deal. But they laid out that there would be real costs imposed by the Trump administration if they violated those central understandings. We, we did that. We, did, we didn't get all the way out. Uh, we got down to about 2,800 uniformed military personnel on the ground there, and we held that. And while we held it, we we kept what was for Afghanistan, the, the order that protected America. The Biden administration chose a different path. They ripped up our path forward, and you can see the results. Mr. Secretary, uh, I've sort of become the person on this podcast who hones in on Pakistan's role here. It seems like for 30 years, Pakistan's strategy has been to play all sides in Afghanistan. Uh, and in light of the Pakistan-China relationship, but also recognizing our interests going forward in Afghanistan, what's the what do you think the policy, the U.S. policy with Pakistan should be going forward? You know, Pakistan has absolutely played all sides in this effort for an awfully long time. Uh, they would certainly tell the Americans they were going to help uh, and then, you know, not help us as much as they'd committed to. Uh, they still have deep connections to the Haqqani network. We now see the work that they're doing alongside the Chinese Communist Party. And all the while, they're a nuclear capable nation. And so the Pakistan challenge is that you have enormous military influence there largely in control of what's taking place inside of, of Pakistan today. And when, when we apply pressure to them, they'll often comply. They'll often do things that we ask them to do, I think, because they think it's in their best interest often as well. But we can see quietly that they're not acting in ways that are consistent with their bigger commitment to help us ultimately root out al-Qaeda in a serious way. Uh, we took the approach for our four years where we denied a lot of resources to them. We stopped underwriting much of the work that had been underwritten before we we tried to use our economic might as well to push back against CPEC, against the, the Chinese economic effort there too. Uh, but it remains a very complex, very troubling problem. Uh, I guess the last thought I'd say is it is worth noting, and this was alluded to earlier, we don't have Al-Qaeda's most senior leadership in Pakistan any longer, at least its operational network, global footprint operational leadership. It could be that there's still a senior al-Qaeda leader inside of Pakistan, but the operations are being controlled from Tehran today, and it gets it kind of closes the loop on our conversation with Iran. Here we have the Biden administration sitting in Vienna, Austria, with Ibrahim Raisi, one of the worst human rights violators in the world, who is currently hosting the only organization that has killed thousands of people in the United States with a terror attack. It is mind-boggling to me that we're we are we have leaders in America talking about re-entering a deal with a nation that is hosting the the global headquarters for Al Qaeda. Mr. Secretary, I want to be able to ask a couple questions on Israel too. Um, one thing in the news before we get there, you've probably been watching the controversy swirling about supposedly bilat calls between General Milley and his counterpart uh, in China and whether they were done behind the president's back at the time or not. It's hard to discern whether this is fake news or a real concern. Do you have any reaction on, on what the story is? You know, I, I always start with it's Bob Woodward. <laughs> so that's a, that seems like a good launching point. Having said that, General Milley confirmed some of what was said was true, that the Milley did, in fact, have a phone call with his Chinese counterparts. There's nothing per se troubling about him talking to his Chinese counterparts. Indeed, there's nothing troubling about hotline, redline conversations where you 
if, if you think you sense that your adversary is misreading something that's taken place, you want to you want to clarify that. But that needs to be done at the most senior levels and pre-coordinated to do, including with the president of the United States in nearly every instance. And then so 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 it's possible. And, and Woodward's reporting and Millie's statements are a little they, they don't quite jive. So I'll leave that with as the principle. The principle is, yeah, if your adversary is about to do something in response to something that you think creates more risk for your country and you can clean it up by talking to them, then then that will likely make sense once everybody's on board on our side. But Milley actually said something more egregious than that. He said that he did, in fact, tell the Chinese that he would notify them before an attack. I find that mind boggling. <laughs> it's also untrue. There was no chance that the Trump administration was going to do that. Milley, for goodness sakes, wasn't even in the chain of command. But he, there needs to be even more analysis of what was said on that phone call. If, in fact, he was undermining the president of the United States on some theory that he thought he knew better and President Trump was going to do something crazy or ridiculous. A, it was false. The president ne never indicated that he had any intention of acting in a way that somehow Woodward's book tries to hype. Maybe he's just selling paper. But second, if General Milley did do that, if he undermined the president of the United States in that way, he's got to be fired. He should certainly resign himself. Uh, we need more clarity about what's actually said. And it is not the case that a senior military leader should ever call an adversary and pre-signal pre that we will not attack them in the event that that's in America's best interest to do so. Mr. Secretary, one question on Israel, and then I want to get to our fun lightning round to close it out, uh, right. which I think we'll enjoy a little lighter. Uh, but one more serious question. The, the Biden administration has said it's going to move forward with reopening a consul general for the Palestinians in Jerusalem. Uh, that's an issue that that's probably uh, very near and dear to your heart to, as you were participating in moving the U.S. embassy uh, to Jerusalem, closing down the separate consulate for the Palestinians. Uh, I assume you don't support that move. <laughs> I guess the question is, would you expect that the next Republican president would commit to closing that back up? I would. I, I think I think every president needs to commit to it. Republican and Democrat alike. This isn't a partisan issue. It is, but by the way, I think it's illegal. I don't think he has the, the ability to do that. We don't have consulates in the same city. We have embassies anywhere in the world. Uh, second, it is also unnecessary and counterproductive. And I think, frankly, sends the wrong signal to the Palestinians as well. Right. It signals to them back to business as usual, back to theft and kleptocracy and pay to slay and, and all the, the horrors that the Palestinian le leadership in the West Bank has imposed on its own people as well. All right, so Mr. Secretary, now for the lightning round, uh, we, have, we have a couple of more lighthearted questions. Uh, I'm gonna start with, um, do you have a favorite Yiddish or Hebrew word or phrase? <laughs> oh my goodness, I think my son would tell you it is kvetch. Oh, Rich, that's a Rich great does one. A, Rich does a lot of fetching on this podcast. My that's son a really did good. Too one. much too. That's how he knows it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know, you know, fetch can also be a noun. My mother would say to me, Jared, don't be such a fetch. Nice. So, I did not know that. Yeah, I'll yeah. Could, all, just like I do some of my American words and verbs, nouns. You know. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> all right, Rich. Okay, okay, okay. Serious yeah. question: How many bottles of Pompeo wine have you enjoyed since? <laughs> You know, it is uh, humbling to have Pompeo wine. Uh, it's funny because people think it's Italian, right? Because it's got Pompeo <laughs> on the label. Uh, we've, ha we've had a few and uh, it is such a lovely thing. And so, so wonderful. Uh, it, uh, it's, it, uh, I, I can't tell you how much it meant to me because the, 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 the state of Israel is such an important part of my life as a Christian evangelical. 
uh, to, to think that someone would honor me in this way is just, <laughs> you know, for Mike, that's really something. Mr. Secretary, do you have a favorite Jewish food? Oh, goodness. Uh, well, you know, I'm trying to get a little healthier, but you know, if you put a chocolate babka in front of me, yeah. probably gone. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's a good choice. <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay. And the, fi- uh, the, fi- the final big lightning round question for you, sir. Who will win this year's Army-Navy game? And unfortunately, Army cannot be one of the answers to the question. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, we had a bad run for 13 years, but we're back. And uh, I give us a pretty good shot this year. We'll see. Hope it's a good game. Secretary Mike Pompeo, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank you all so much. So long. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. Rich, uh, former Secretary of State, CIA Director, potential 2024 presidential candidate, Mike Pompeo. A lot of news in there. What do you think? I think uh, we heard Secretary Pompeo, the classic uh, Pompeo, in rare form. Um, I was intrigued by his defense of negotiating with the Taliban even in hindsight, um, so clearly uh, believes that it was the right thing to do, um, that that the Trump administration simply would have held to some sort of stricter standard or of enforcement of the deal. Um, I thought that was interesting. Uh, his comments on General Milley's conversations, I think, were both uh, sober, uh, appropriate um, understanding of the need for military to military um uh, contacts uh, for de-escalation purposes. The hotline obviously is an important tool, uh, but still, I think a little bit of news there on the curiosity as to how such a call would not have been coordinated uh, with the president. And I think the big news is that uh, he or others uh, who might run for president on the Republican side uh, would be staking out a policy of whether or not the Biden administration reopens a Palestinian consulate in Jerusalem, um, that's going to be sort of like the Iran nuclear deal. That consulate lasts so long as there's a Democratic president, it sounds like. Yeah, I would agree, but not the obviously the gravity of of the Iran nuclear deal and, uh, you know, to the region. That's it. If you like the show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because that's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, this is Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks for listening.